0: Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad.
1: My guest today is Norman Meir. He is a U.S. Marine Corps retired veteran with over 20 years of experience in the electronics rework and repair industry. He received his training through the Navy's Micro Miniature 2M electronic repair program. He has progressed through every level of rework and repair recognized by the industry. Norman has also earned the highest certifications awarded by IPC in the electronics training, being certified as a master instructor in IPC A610, J Standard 001D. IPC WHMA A620 and IPC 7711 and 7721. He has worked through Best Incorporated for several electronics industry leaders and created tailored courses for their equipment. This also includes providing training to technicians and engineers in surface mount and advanced surface mount technology. The knowledge Norm has brought to these companies has been invaluable to their process improvement efforts. His skill has also been a major factor in keeping best incorporated training at the forefront of the electronics training field. I'm thrilled to welcome my guest today on the subject of rework and repair, Norman Meir. Norman Meir, thanks for joining me on Reliability Matters. I really appreciate you being here today.
0: Well, thank you, Mike, for having me here uh, into your show and talking about rework and repair today.
1: And just before we went on the air, uh, you, you had mentioned something about rework. And, and I love when I bring subject matter experts on because I know this much and you guys know this much, right? And, <laughs> and, um, and you kind of corrected me, which is great. Uh, when I, anytime something needs to be worked on, I just consider it rework. But you were very right. quick to point out the difference between rework and repair. So tell me what the differences are. What, what's the definition of those two?
0: Okay, in accordance with the, the industry standards and everything in the, uh, the definition, rework is actually uh, where you would uh, put it back into its original engineering drawings and designs. Like you take off a resistor or a transistor and you put the exact same style back in its place. Whereas repair is where we just get it to function, it doesn't have to meet uh, like the 610 or the J standard, it's just something that's agreement between you and your customer. Like, example, um, a splice. It's a repair, just getting it to function again, attaching it back together instead of replacing the whole thing, which would be considered rework. Then,
1: are there IPC standards on repair or do they just apply to rework? Or when it comes to no, repair, um, is it all bets are off? It's just whatever it takes to get it going? <laughs>
0: And uh, there is a uh, IPC 7711 is the, the guidelines for how to take parts off, how to put them back on, and to clean up the area. Uh, repair is part of that guideline, but it's the 7721 section of it, which is step-by-step on how to do the do your job. But there is no set standard on how repair... Uh, specifications are. It's usually an agreement between you and your customer of how you're going to repair it and what it will look like when it's completed. But whereas the rework, you would probably more than likely follow the six ten guidelines.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I guess it would be very difficult to hold IPC standards up for repair. You know, when you're just trying to get it functioning again, right? Uh,
0: right. Exactly. It's, it's
1: already served its purpose. Now it's now now it's going in for its second life right it died now it's going in for its second life
0: some of them yeah it's like uh, a connector if you break a wire it's a lot easier especially in an aircraft just to splice the wires back together and keep it go- on going from there whereas like if a component goes bad on a circuit board no matter how old it is uh, that would still be considered rework because you would the same style apart everything you'd put it right back into its place
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Now, you talked about some IPC standards. I should point out to my audience, you are an IPC master instructor. Is there a – there are levels of instructors, and is master the – Yes. That's the highest level? (laughs) That's the highest (laughs) level of of ascension in the IPC world, right?
0: Yeah. You have – let's – your master IPC trainer, that's what I am. I've been a master instructor since uh, 2001 and uh i train and certify and ins- people to become instructors but also the assemblers the cits are the next level down they can only train and certify ciss ciss is, is your assemblers in your in your facility so that's your three levels that ipc has
1: yeah that makes sense and how long did it take you to get up to that level of uh, master instructor
0: um I've been soldering for a little over 34 years now. April 19th, 1987 is when I went to my training. While I was in the Marine Corps, I went to Cecilville, Florida for the for the course, which was 32 days long. So I've been soldering 13 years of my Marine Corps career. And then when I retired, uh, IPC ble- basically blessed me, and I had to fill out some forms. And I went through my uh, CIT training for 610, which is, deals with the uh, inspection of electronic assemblies. Then I also went to J Standard, which deals with process control and, and some types of inspections. And then 771121, which was rework and repair. And Then in 2003, I went through uh, wires, cables, and harnesses, which is a 620. So I've been a master instructor. It's just uh, paperwork. And since I've been doing it for a long time, now they, uh, We used to have to recertify every two years. Now it's changed to uh, ongoing training for the master instructors. Yeah, I would think CITs it's every two years.
1: Yeah, I would think in this business that we're in, uh, certifications you know maybe hourly uh, could be required. Things change at such a rapid pace. Uh, Yes, yet problems from 20 years ago still exist right so we are this is true yeah they don't go away so we're just adding every you know every so often we are adding to the complexity and and the intricacies of the assembly world because we're still soldering through hole components in the days of bottom terminated components right they're all a mix of things on on a board today Uh, you work for best uh or work with or for best uh, tell me a little bit about what Best does, and uh, I, it, what, relative to rework and repair and, and training, and uh, maybe I've just said it all, but but elaborate a little. bit on that, <laughs> Yeah, you is, did. Okay, there you we go. We, uh, Next, <laughs>
0: we uh, the company actually started out as a training company in a thirty-foot uh, uh, Winnebago. That's how it all got started with a gentleman named Bill Westmoreland, and then uh, about four or five years after I got with them. Uh, Bob Wetterman took it over. We were still a, uh, a training company, but we'd actually been in several years for rework and repair. We have uh, a facility in Rolling Meadows that there's several people in the back. That's all they do all day long is uh, we consider, I say, a crisis management company where a company has an issue that comes up, uh, we can uh, rework, repair it, or develop a process for that rework and repair so you can do it in-house. But we also, like you said, we've been uh, started out as a training company and just evolved from there. But we also, uh, we, our third leg is product. We sell easy reballs, stencil quicks, stencil mates, stuff like that for uh, reballing BGAs. That's the easy reball stuff. So it makes it a little bit easier, faster process. Uh, we've had that many, many years now. It's a great little product. And then we got our stencil quicks and stencil mates. So, you don't have to use metal stencils, which we can actually fabricate on site uh, with our company. We have about six lasers to do all of this with. So we have a good time with all of that. It's pretty quick and simple, easy product. The first time I had to do easy reball, it's like they got, said, here, this is how it works. And then I turn around and it's like, that's too simple. And they go, yeah. So that's I've had point, fun at right? trade shows with that.
1: Yeah, I, I'll bet. So, so you talk about crisis management. Um, which piqued my interest when it comes to repair i would imagine that's truly a crisis issue because something's not working they need it working and Mm -hmm. so tell me what a typical crisis management situation is is there a typical repair or scenario that brings a user to you or does it change you know hourly or by the minute by the second
0: uh it varies uh, most of our repairs are where a uh, customer has damaged a board, lifted a pad or a conductor or burnt the board, and they need that fixed. And we have a couple people at our facility that have become matter experts over the years of doing that kind of job. And they do a really good job. I've been impressed with uh, the ones that do all of that. And then we have the uh, some companies um, maybe got a capacitor or resistor wrong or even a uh, an integrated circuit and they will send them to us and it might be maybe a hundred boards maybe a thousand boards or more and uh, it's cheaper to send them to us with the matter experts that we have in the back that can take these parts and put them back on whereas your personnel um, are looking for some issues but they don't have a lot of experience uh, somebody at your facility has probably uh, shown them how to do the job. So,
1: yeah, that we, makes sense. We do a
0: lot of BJ. We do a lot of BGA rework too.
1: Yeah, I would think so. Uh, what about the regular other bottom terminal components, QFNs, things like that? Do you? you know, there's those are problematic in so many ways, right? they yes. our industry tends to come up with the latest and greatest component.
0: Without the latest
1: and greatest technique to solder that component or clean that component, in in my world, so that kind of of gets worked out by folks like yourself, right? You kind of figure out how to do it. Um, So the the component designers design the component based on its function and package size and all sorts of things, but not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily designed for manufacturability. Um, So when when a new component comes on the scene, do you do you see that like a like Like the effects of a tsunami, you know, so many hours later, so many months later, so many years later, it starts landing on your doorstep? Or is it pretty instant?
0: No, uh, after a little bit of time, we'll start seeing uh, like the uh, BTCs, bottom terminated connected components, like the QFNs, okay? And uh, had to come up with ways to rework and repair them. In other words, you got to put solder paste down there. So what we come up with was uh, a process they did in the in the back. Uh, gentleman named Hung, he is our rework and repair operations manager. Uh, him and the owner come up with a design for a stencil stencil mate, where we actually use one stencil to bump the part, and then we use another stencil to bump the board. So we run the part through a our, our rework another hot wear, hot air system. And then when it's done, then we bring it over. We use the other stencil to do our board, put the part down in, and then run it through a reflow process. And we get more reliability that way. And you're not worrying about shorts or positioning or anything like that because everything is spot on.
1: When I, I've heard many consultants. I've interviewed several consultants on the show. And, and there is a common theme on advice, and that is um, never – repair or rework whatever the proper term should be in this this context for a cosmetic issue if yeah you're just,
0: talking about rework
1: yes just leave it be because the chances are if you go to rework it to fix a cosmetic thing you're going to create you know the, the possibility for other things to go wrong um is that a shared belief when you're in oh, the business definitely. of rework you're not in the business of, of telling people no, you know? So, so uh, <laughs> at, at what point do you recommend, well, let me rephrase that. What do you recommend not reworking? Uh,
0: uh, if it meets the acceptability of the customer's requirements and also in accordance with the 610, then uh, leave it alone. That's why uh, one of the issues that was coming up for many, many years, as people were reworking to put it, there's used to be four conditions in the industry. Targeted condition means it was picture perfect. It used to be called preferred. Then you had your acceptable, which means you had your tolerances. And then you had your process indicator. Something's not right, but it still meets form, fit, and function. Then you had your defect. Well, people were reworking acceptables to put them in the targeted condition. And what this does is you lose a little bit of reliability. Each time you go back in there and rework something or heat it back up, you're increasing the intermetallic layer, that solder fillet between your TID and your your platings. So the thicker the plating becomes or the intermetallic layer, the weaker the solder joint becomes, and now it looks nice. Well, it looked nice before. It just didn't meet the higher standard you wanted it to. So the industry, uh, with this latest revision, uh, we took out the targeted conditions. So now you just had to meet acceptable. So now you have a tolerance to work with and uh, just leave it at that. Once it meets that acceptability, leave it alone. And when I do a lot, of, I go all over the United States doing solder training in our mobile training center. And uh, I see that all the time and I get on to students, why are you touching it up? Why are you rework? Well, I don't like the way it looks or my quality control does not like this. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The standard is there to put everybody on the same sheet of music. So that's what a lot of these companies need to realize is how, what I tell students, how you feel, how you think, don't do it. You know, what is the standard is, leave it alone. you got reliability right there to start with.
1: I I've said this many times and my team will probably roll their eyes if they hear this. Uh, Fortunately, I don't think they watch the show. So I think I'm safe, (laughs) but but, um, you're, you're never a prophet in your own home. I think that's a, that's a worthwhile saying. Um, I used to tell my salespeople, you know, when the customer says yes, stop selling, sh- shut up. You know, all you can do is make it bad, right? So as soon as the right. customer says yes, stop selling. And I think, in, in what I'm hearing from you is, as soon as the part meets an acceptable acceptability level, stop reworking it. Stop trying to make it even better, right? It just yeah. meet the standard, as you said, be on the same, you know, choir sheet, all, all play from the same <laughs> sing from the same hymnal, and then stop because the, the more time. That soldering iron is on a part. Whatever you're doing, the the greater the chance of of causing damage or or actually yes. reducing reliability. So you endeared me a little bit. I was watching a video on your website where you were showing um, your audience how to properly solder an axial leaded component. And okay, and it was you know this is geek stuff now because how many people will you know <laughs> will watch. Soldering videos at night. Yeah, but it was, a, it was a beautiful solder job, and you made it look very easy. But then, that impressed me. But what impressed me even more? Uh, now, maybe this was for some reason that I shouldn't be impressed with, but I was impressed anyway. You were using a no-clean flux, and after right. you soldered this uh, axial-leaded component in, you cleaned the residue, and it was no-clean. Mm-hmm. I love that. So tell me, what uh, was that just because you wanted to show – you know, what a typical cleaning process would be? Or, or are you a believer in um, removing excess residue, particularly with no clean?
0: It's It goes all the way back to my military days. And when you were done soldering, you, we used a rosin flux back then. And when you were done, you had to clean it because of that rosin flux residue. But as time progressed, it's like uh, the way my belief is, even though you're using no clean, which could be an alcohol or an aqueous base, there's still some type of residue left behind that uh, contamination can get uh, get in there, like dirt, lint, stuff of that nature that attaches to it. And then as time progresses, create a deander growth, and then you've got a short coming on. And then also remember, sometimes um, it Flows over onto a connection, and you might not be able to get a good connection.
1: Yeah, and I noticed uh, another good reason was because the flux was applied, uh, I think, with a with a needle uh, or you know, yes. a squeeze thing. Um, that it wetted out quite a bit, and yet the soldering iron only touched the metallic area, you know, the 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 barrel and the and the pin. Uh, so right. a lot of that flux was left on. Un, uh, unactivated, and when I right. saw that, when I saw you do that, I'm like, "Oh, what does this guy know? Look, he's making a classic <laughs> mistake." And then, then you cleaned it. I'm like, "Oh no, he's got it. He's got it down." So, you pass my residue test. Just so oh, you know. thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> yeah, no certification comes with that, but that's uh, but you pass right. that. What are the most common mistakes people make when they try and either repair or rework something? Um, I'm sure there's a common denominator, and it probably. It probably changes as as uh, time goes by, but what at the moment are the common mistakes people make? And what I how uh, do they avoid using it?
0: the wrong size tip. That's that's the number one thing that I do see is, and I it's a common theme in most companies that go do training at is they only have a couple of tips, and their excuses is, this is the only ones they give us. But in my in our training classes, we have a good variety of tips to show that. Uh, a tip is a tool, and you have a variety of tools, like when you work on a car, you do woodworking, or anything else like that, to build a better quality product. And that's what you're trying to do in the end when you rework, or repair, is to get that quality product back up and running again. And my rule, my thought process has always been is that your rework, or repair should equal or be better than the original process, and it should last longer than what it did the first time. So that's why I believe in it. I've had a lot of fun doing. My expertise is in rework and repair. I uh, did it for 13 years of my Marine Corps career, and then just oh. took it on over from there. And I that's I like doing that more than anything. And actually, I'm more into repair. I like to figure out going multi-layer repair, uh, getting in there and having to excavate down several layers, almost like terracing. And then bringing that, fixing that conductor, and then bringing it back out slowly. And then that, when you're all said and done, the product works. And people are like, I'm glad because we can't re- get a new board. This is it.
1: Right? Yeah, but imagine in, in the, particularly the repair side of it, there's two skill sets involved. One is the tactical, you know, how right. to, how to extract a, a bad component, replace it with a new component. Uh, repair mm-hmm. traces, things like that. But another is a little bit more strategic. That is a little bit of detective work that has to go on to figure out what needs to be repaired. It's not always yes. the smoldered part, right? That may be the <laughs> symptom, but there might be 12 other problems that led up to that smoldered part. And just replacing that smoldered part is going to create a new smoldered part. So yes. uh, what what tools, what tricks do you have up your sleeve with all that you know thirty plus years of experience that allows you to see a symptom and then determine what a root cause is?
0: Uh well first off like you said you gotta find the damaged area and you see that burn and everything and you gotta look at that. Now you gotta know is this a multi-layer board, single layer board, double layer board, whatever type? And if it's multi-layer, the advantage that we have now is uh, x-rays so then you can actually put it in the machine and analyze it and see where your break or damage is in the multi layer area i like that it's made a lot easier on me than having to do the old school of doing a resistor check you know using a diode system on a multimeter and just going point to point until you until you locate it and then you've got to look at the drawings and uh, you got to have the drawings to the layers of the board to figure out what layer that damage is done, and then I consider uh, doing a lot of this stuff as like playing chess. You got to analyze the situation, the opponent, which is your board, and to figure out uh, how to beat that opponent in the end.
1: I think it's like that Star Trek chess, you know, with the th- three-dimensional chess. Oh yeah, even more than <laughs> even more go. than just checks, chess, chess, uh, because uh, there's so much to it. How uh, with um, multi-layer boards with you know, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, whatever, whatever the number is. I mean, they can get pretty, pretty gnarly in terms it, of the, the layers. Yeah. Uh, what tools? You mentioned X-ray. Is that the primary tool that one would use to it is now, see I below do. the surface? Mm-hmm. As well that as. By the way,
0: we don't have we don't have to get with the customer and ask them for the drawings because some of the customers will not uh, offer up the drawings because it's proprietary knowledge only for their customer. So when we get it, we have to look at it in a different uh, perspective now. So, so they're kind of
1: asking but, you to find where the treasure is buried, but they're not giving you the map. Right? Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: that's a challenge.
0: So so that's why the I really do like using the x-rays now. And then you figure out your layers down through there, and you just uh, do a diode test real quick and get the little beep and say, okay, it's not making its beep, and then – start excavating down slowly. And uh, some of the equipment, uh, like the uh, Pace, has a system out there for uh, using, instead of using a Dremel tool or system, it is a Dremel tool, but it has a automatic stop. So you put it on one side of the conductor, and then as you're drilling down into the board, it actually would stop it like on a dime so you don't damage that conductor. And then you can go in there, excavate around a little bit, cut it, and keep going down so you know where every layer is at a little bit easier that way too.
1: This is probably a hard question to answer because it, it, there's so many variables. But is yes. is there a common cause for failures on a board? Meaning, is it usually latent defects in a component? Is it the design of, of the board and the circuitry? just leads toward failure is it uh the unexpected in-use climactic environment maybe the part wasn't designed for that is it all of the above none of the above i'm gonna go with all of the above sure there
0: is no common theme for any of it uh in my days in my uh when i used to do a lot of that in the marine corps is like it might be an electric strike on a bird uh a power surge from the generator. it, just a component failure due to static electricity. So there's so many things that could cause it. So you really can't pinpoint really that's what it is,
1: right? do you ever do you ever uh, run into a situation where you have to tell the customer, this is just going to keep happening if you don't change x, y, or z? Uh, can you see that as do you ever look at a board and go, yeah, this is this is going to fail. I'm going to see this again in six months or or whatever.
0: Hmm, that's a tough one. I've, as a rework and repair uh, technician, uh, in my days, it was uh, different vendors, different parts. So the divin- original design was done with this vendor of parts from manufacturers, supplier. Then as, uh, for the military aspect of it, they got a new contract. And so now these parts are uh, barely meeting specifications. So when you have a little bit of a surge, which the old ones had a little bit more of a tolerance, then you have that issue. I have seen that in my early days.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you ever, I would imagine your world, particularly when you're doing rework or even repair on military products, the parts you're the new components that you're buying are probably lead-free. You probably, I'm oh, guessing, wow. you have to retin them in mm-hmm. in a sixty-three thirty-seven alloy or sixty-four whatever you're using. Uh, is, is that a is that a an ongoing issue of having to convert it back, or or does the does the entire board get reworked and and re re-soldered with lead-free or or what? what no. how does which way does it go? It goes backwards, uh, right? Um,
0: if, if the part is, if we're having to take it, what we call different flavors, of like ice cream. You have different flavors of ice cream, and same way with on your parts. So if you're having to go from lead-free back into the lead community, one of the things that you have to do is what we refer to as rinsing the part. So you're going to clean it off first with, uh, with a, a lead solder. So you're going to put that on there first, then you're going to wick it all off, then you're going to, I'm talking about like a BGA or QFN is where we're seeing this more than anything. Most uh, parts now uh, you can recommend uh, from the vendor what you want, but BGAs, you can only get them in one flavor. So we're having to reball that. Uh, so we have to rinse the pad sites three times to put it back into a, uh, a lead fillet. Okay. And then uh, we've actually got on our website on solder.net, we do have a uh, a white paper that was introduced probably about 15 years ago or so on that of how do you like even using tips, like instead at the same station and this contract says, I'm going to be doing lead. Then this contract says lead free. So I learn how to rinse my tips and that's uh 10 of them three times. And then it goes back into a, a lead tip from lead free to lead.
1: Wow. Three times. Yes. I, I, that that's surprising. I wouldn't, I would have, thought just once was enough, but three times. Oh, no.
0: It uh, Our white paper actually shows it uh, slowly coming down to be within the respectable range.
1: And I'll have a link to that white paper on our show notes. So for the audience that's listening uh, or watching, uh, I'll send you a link uh, to that white paper. You can download it off of the solder.net website. Uh, I'm going to ask you to work yourself out of a job momentarily. Uh, let's say 100% of your job is uh, soldering. And Uh, what are the most you you mentioned chisel size or 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 iron tip size right besides that what are the most uh, the most common mistakes made when someone is hand soldering something or even even for that matter uh reflow soldering or, or wave soldering right one of the one of the most common soldering mistakes uh, and i know in hand soldering but my early days of hand soldering it was more like solder sculpting right i just created a pile of solder and <laughs> the weight alone would hold the part down i don't think there was an interconnect right. there other than the weight pushing the part on the pad there right. certainly was no uh, metallic interconnect but but those were the early days of my soldering career, and I'm glad to say I don't have to solder anymore, because I was never yeah. very good at it. Uh, but what, what what constitutes a good solder joint? What constitutes maybe an ugly but still acceptable solder joint, and where does it just go off the rails, and what are the common mistakes made?
0: <laughs> well, the common mistake that I see is what I refer to for some students is they don't know how to reduce the amount of solder that they're going to use. So, like everything else, uh, your solder is a tool also. So, you got different diameters. You got a 032, 025, 020, 015, 010 are some of the common sizes that we use in soldering. And uh, again, it's a tool and it should be concave and inward form. But the other thing that I see is uh, when they're soldering is if they're used to through-hole, now they're going to surface mount. Whereas you push the solder in and surf in through-hole In surface mount, you just lay it there and do like a cutting sensation or motion. That's what a lot of our videos show. And then the other thing is uh, chromagnon knuckle drag soldering techniques is what I call it. <laughs> Heavy hands cause damage, and it should be the lighter the touch, the better you are. You got to make make sure that your pad side is heated up. Uh, Your solder is above solder melt temperature and your lead. So if these three things are above solder melt temperature, then you have a good solder fillet being created. And the other thing is get in, get out, don't hang out. Uh, You know, quick little jabs in and out. Like the smaller the parts are getting nowadays, less than one second you should be in there where the old school thumb for uh, through hole was 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. That's what I learned when I was in the Marine Corps in, in my solder classes. Count to three. And of course, now, back then
1: you, there was so, quite a bit of mass associated with those leads in the pads, right?
0: Yes. A lot of ground planes, very thick areas. And that's what you had to overcome too is, and even still yet in surface mount, you have to be careful of your large ground planes. So there's where you're looking at. Are you using bottom heaters to get the board up to a warm feeling, and that way when you go in there with the iron, you don't have a longer dwell time. It's again get in, get out, don't hang out. So use a variety of tools to your advantage.
1: I love those. Uh, I love those sayings. Uh, one Thanks. of my one of my last questions, at least one of my last plan questions, is uh, conformal coating removal. So many boards, particularly today, uh, with IoT and boards going out into. Uh, harsh environments, uh, electrification of cars yes. is one example. More and more boards are being conformally coated for a variety of reasons. And when something goes wrong and needs repair, uh, mm-hmm. the, that conformal coating needs to be removed so one can get to the component and then perhaps reapplied. Are there uh, best practice techniques for the removal of conformal coating?
0: <laughs> First off, it depends, it depends on the conformal right. coating. Right. Yeah. Number one, like uh, there is quite a variety out there nowadays that have uh, a chemical that you can use to dissolve it and get all that out of there. If not, you have to go to the old school, use a little hot air, a little bit of an orange wood stick and slowly abrade away. But remember, keep your hot air low enough so it doesn't put it burn the board or uh, reflow the solder fillet that you don't want to do yet and slowly work at it. Uh, like epoxies, you're going to be using uh, heat and abrasion a little bit to get that off there. Over cure it is some of the techniques, and then cut around it, desolder it, and it should pop right out of there. That was from my military days. That technique was, and it worked great.
1: Yeah, the military did a lot of conformal coating for obvious reasons because yes. of the climactic and use environment, right? Yes. So when one does remove, either through uh, micro abrasion or or chemical or what, whatever other you know forced removal of that area yes. uh can that be conformally coated back over will the conformally will the conformal coat adhere to the existing conformal coat and and create a good a good adhesive adhesive bond uh, or you know how, I, I think of conformal coating and and the surface that it is adhering to which is the laminate mm-hmm. of the board and the components being very clean for for good adhesion conformal coating stick to conformal coating it, because it does have to i imagine overlap a little bit to to uh yes to get a good seal
0: it's uh so far every conformal coating i've ever dealt with uh is number one thing that you said there at the, uh, was cleaning make sure the area is nice and clean so it can hear it back to the board to the part and yeah it will fuse back into uh the original conformal coating, you'll see a little bit of an overlap with a lot of them. So I've never had any conformal coating. Only one is the hardest one to actually rework is perylene to put it back on. And in accordance with uh, some of my friends that they're the matter experts on this, the government has authorized uh, polyurethanes to be the conformal coating to go back on for perylene because of, uh, the process to rework or re- to put it back
1: onto the board itself. Right. Cause perylene is a vacuum deposition process. And I don't think exactly. you can spot perylene things. It's kind of an all or nothing <laughs> unless you physically mask it. You, it, it is an all or nothing kind of proposition. Um, it's not exactly you spray it on into an area. Uh, yeah, right. that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, finally, and I said that before my last question, but, but this is probably the final question. Uh, have you, uh, have have as the source of some of the repair, um, in your experience, been counterfeit components? Have you ever pulled off a component and and had to tell the customer that, you know, you you bought this from the wrong v- a vendor, that it's counterfeit, or is that or are they so good that y- you can't tell, other than the failure factor? Uh,
0: I've never dealt with a counterfeit part. All the years that I've been doing this, I've never seen a counterfeit part. Now, I know our facility has dealt with customers, and that's why we've had to do some rework and repair is because they obtained counterfeit parts. Right. And so that's how we can get some of our business. But I have never dealt with it per se because, like I said, for the last 21 years, I've been been the trainer uh, traveling all over the United States. Like next week, I'm up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin teaching. So constantly on the road.
1: Do you ever, when someone sends a board to best and you have to again, repair it, um, whose job is it to procure the component? It do, does the customer want you to do it or do they send you a, you know, a, a, a tote full of old components that they've had on the shelf for 30 <laughs> years and, and say you figure it out or, or what?
0: We've, uh, usually comes from the customer, um, It starts out where we do a quote first and then um, hung in the back, looks at it and uh, says how much it's gonna cost and everything. And then the customer provides all the parts that we do, any rework or repair that we have to do to anything. Rarely ever do we order it and then they will give us the information. Then then that's how we would order from their supplier.
1: Excellent. Are we missing anything? Have we covered the rework and repair? I know I know we we covered probably one one hundredth of it or maybe even one one thousandth of it because there's so many so many aspects to it, but have we covered the major uh, uh, bullet points?
0: Yeah, uh, to me we have because uh, we, we talked about tip selection, we talked about fluxes, and that's where some customers it's what is one of my sayings that uh, one of my friends like is flux is your friend, but don't abuse your friend. Because a little dab of flux is great, but a large amount, you're going to have more air to clean and more possibility of causing other issues, especially like inside of a connector. And that's harder to get cleaned out of inside of there. So you want to minimize it. Okay. And then there's sometimes you can get away with, instead of using any external fluxes, which I'm a big fan of, is that uh, you just uh, use a small diameter with a, like a, uh, a p3 style flux, which means it has more flux in the center core than a p2. And that way, you don't have to use any, I'm not saying you don't have to, but you can minimize using any external flux, like a prime example would be like a ZIF connector, you try to stay away from using any external fluxes on them, because it gets right up into that connector really quick.
1: Right. So. Right. And then, uh, that starts the, uh, oxidation process, uh, of the, yes. <laughs> of the metal. And then at some point someone tugs on something, the connector breaks off and no one, and then they have to call you. And
0: exactly. Right. And we're more than willing to come and show you how to do the training yourself so you can do it in the future or send it to us because a lot of times, uh, you might not have the manpower to do that rework and repair for a lot of boards, so they start looking around for companies like Best Incorporated, that uh, you send us a board, we give you a quote, and then you look at it and say yes or no. And that way, you don't have a, we have the quality of personnel to do the job for you instead of you having to train somebody or take them away from what they should be doing to do this rework or repair.
1: Well, that sounds like a wise uh, wise bit of advice, uh, uh, Norman Muir, Best Incorporated, IPC Master trainer uh, and uh, uh 20 year uh uh more than 30 years of experience uh in this industry uh marine yeah. corps veteran uh, thank you for your service thank you for taking what you've learned in the military and applying it to the rest of the world uh, i think the world is better off for that and uh, if you can't do it right you know who to call uh,
0: exactly ask for norman do it right and if you can't do it right
1: call norman call best well uh thank you you so much for being my guest today norman i really appreciate it you're a wealth of knowledge and i've been wanting to talk rework for a long time i've just never really uh known where to what intersection to enter the rework freeway in? Because it's such a okay. vast discussion. So thanks for uh, thanks for allowing us to to uh, dabble in the rework and repair. Thanks for clarifying there is a difference between rework and repair. I've learned something, uh, which mm-hmm. is one of the great things for hosting the show. I get to learn all sorts of interesting things like that. So thanks for being my guest, and um, uh, I will put your contact information, audience, if you'd like to get a hold of of Norman Muir, uh at best or anyone else there. Uh, just look up the show notes and I'll have contact information there. Norman, thanks again. Good talking to you.
0: Thank you, Mike, for having me. You have a good day now. You too.
1: Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. Or watch the video version on our Reliability Matters YouTube channel. Special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine and Ascendo Reliability for syndicating the show where you can listen to this and other interesting podcasts on pcbchat.com and reliability.fm. And be sure and check out our newest podcast, the Concept to Creation podcast. On this podcast, we have discussions with entrepreneurs of the electronic assembly industry about their journey into business. We discuss their successes and failures as well as what drives them. You can find that podcast, the Concept to Creation podcast, in the usual places as well as on our Concept to Creation YouTube channel. Thanks for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. You can send them to my email address right down here. That's Mike at MikeConrad.com, Conrad with a K. Once again, thanks for listening. Be safe, be healthy, be happy, and keep doing it right. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join
0: us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.